Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Born on the 4th of July is over. It feels like we're finally home, you know? I wanted to be a good American. I wanted to serve my country. I couldn't wait to fight my first war. We got him! We got him! the word go forth. Daddy, the soldier! Every force has been passed. To a new generation of Americans. Your brother's a hard worker, Tommy. Win or lose. School, sports, life. As long as you do your best. That's what matters to God. First off, young men, let's get one thing straight. There is nothing prouder as a United States Marine. Our dad's got to go to WW2. This is our chance to do something. You should think about what you're doing. You could get yourself killed. Did you ever think about that? Help me, Jesus. Help me to make the right decision. Sometimes I just like to stay here and never leave. I gotta go. 13,000 miles. It's a long way to go to fight a war. Don't you know what it means to me to be a Marine, Dad? Ever since I was a kid, I've wanted this. I wanted to serve my country. I want to go to Vietnam. I'll die there if I have to. There's something happening here. You gotta try and stay alive, it's okay? You hear me? Exactly clear. Chicago has an Alice in Wonderland quality about it. Things are getting curiouser and curiouser. Come on, get up there, get up there. Keep going, keep going. 
on, come on. Honey, stop, children. Watch that sound. Everybody, look what's going down. There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's right. Young people speak in their mind Are getting so much resistance from behind Can find a way to stop? Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look Born on the Fourth of July, Andy. We're uh, this is the end. This is the this is the end. Our only friend, the end. We finally made it. The, this is the the through the eighties with Oliver Stone. All ten films that he uh, wrote, directed, or wrote and directed. How'd this do for you? This has always been one of my favorite Oliver Stone films. It still is. I think that it's spectacular. I like it more than Platoon. And, um, you know, this definitely is way up there as uh, I think it had been my favorite Oliver Stone film. I think it's always balanced between this and JFK. But now I also have talk radio in that mix. This film still um, just holds a you know strong place in my heart. I ended up seeing this a lot when I was younger. And I think I mentioned a few episodes back. This was actually my first Oliver Stone film that I saw in the theaters. So this was... A big experience for me, just kind of going on this ride with Oliver Stone, with Tom Cruise, and kind of this journey that he took in in his exploration of his time in Vietnam, and kind of the the change in mentality with his his perception of the war over this twenty year span of this story. And then I had a roommate in college, and this was his favorite film, and um, he had it on all the time. <laughs> so I saw a lot of this film, a lot of bits and pieces of this film because I wasn't always sitting down watching it with him, but he was always watching it, and and so I saw lots of pieces of it uh, from time to time. So big big film in my life and certainly one that I think still really holds up incredibly well. I think it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I I think I'm, uh, A, I'm I'm colored a bit by uh, my experience with talk radio in terms of just straight up filmmaking. I enjoyed that so much uh, more than this film. I found uh, there there were things in here that I think are, are really strong. Some of the filmmaking just tools and techniques. He's just throwing everything up there, right? Like, here's here's everything I've learned in the last 10 years. And you're going to see it on screen. And you're going to see it in terms of just driving the narrative. You're going to see it at war. You're going to see it at home. You're going to see everything he's doing with the camera and light and framing symbols uh, in a way to move storytelling forward. Uh, all of these things are going on on screen, which is all great. I, I have a hard time, and I'm I'm hoping... It'll come out more clearly in the course of our conversation. I have a hard time figuring out where the stars fall. Weirdly and pettily, it starts with facial hair because I am distracted and pulled out of every scene where Tom Cruise is dealing with some sort of facial hair and makeup. 
It's terrible. It is terrible across the board. And honestly, I feel like a chump saying this, but it is my experience with the movie. I can't get into it when I can't believe what he looks like. I can't. Well, these close-ups are too close. And uh, and so I struggle with it. That's funny. I, I feel like I have, um, I mean, Tommy Handsome, who's one of the uh, regulars on the film board and on Saturday Matinee, and you also have the What's That Smell podcast with him. He notoriously always talks about how accents he has a hard time picking up on um, or hard time having problems with when yeah. people have use accents in films. And I'm the same with that. And I, I have to say, I'm kind of the same with, with uh, facial hair and wigs and stuff. Like, I never... <laughs> I never could tell. I just always assume that it's really their their hair. And so I thought it actually was all really good in this film. You are hairblind. That's what it is. I am. I am hairblind. You're hairblind. No, I mean, there are, there are things in here that are just, I mean, it's just rough. There's nothing. And I think maybe it has to do, Andy, with the fact that you don't yourself wear a beard. And have maybe, is it possible, have as much experience with the tone and texture of what real facial hair looks like? Uh, <laughs> I've had a beard. I know what a beard is like. I, I yeah, I, And I know people wear fake mustaches and all that yeah. sort of stuff in films and stuff. And, you know, I don't know. I guess I just end up, I, I see it and I just immediately kind of go along with it. I don't end up having an issue. It It is. Uh, okay. So we'll take that as notwithstanding that I, what I see as... You, you said it was petty and I would say, yes, it is I, petty. And I, you <laughs> said that you don't buy it and I think that that is uh, hair blindness that gets in the way of your appreciation of the true appreciation of the film. And that's okay. Um, I, I think case in point though, when you see Ron Kovic in the wheelchair in the 4th of July uh, parade in the beginning... Nothing about his mustache looks anything like Tom Cruise ever did in this film. Like, and that's Ron Kovic. That's who they were trying to get to. And I looked very closely at that. Of course, we had more close-ups. The makeup in general was really, I, I think, it just looked caked on Tom Cruise. Uh, and I think it was part to to at least do some subtle aging over the course of our time with him. And uh, those close-ups were were pretty terrible. Um, so I was distracted. Was there a particular... Because, I mean, it changes over the it course does. of it. Was there a particular period that worked the least for you? Or were, were there, I should say, were there any that worked well? The VA hospital is rough. When he's at war on the beach, it's great. Like, his his look is great. The very end at the Democratic National Convention, uh, ironically, I... I, that is some of the weirdest like hair work. And that sort of sells it for me. I think the whole picture is is pretty good. But the hospital is rough because there are so many different stages of him just in healing. Right. Uh, and so when he goes to the hospital, when he goes home, when he's at the billiard table, it's all just it's just terrible. It's just terrible. Wow. Interesting. OK. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 I don't have that problem, and it doesn't bring it down for me at all. Well, here's what I like about it. Let's go. I'm, I'm done with hair. I really, I can move on from <laughs> hair. We'll see if I'm done with hair. Okay, I may come back to hair. But what I really like about this movie is that it is, it's a notorious just sort of anti-war movie, but it's different than an anti-war movie because it's an anti-like deprogramming movie, right? It's, it is the journey of this character who is a supporter of the war and if i go there and die there i'm okay with that to this is a terrible thing that we've inflicted on one another and why can't we learn these lessons and i think the arc of 
him of Stone and Kovic together telling this that story works really well. And I don't know what to call it. I, it's not an anthology story, but it's very similar to, to um, you know, the Steve Jobs movie where we pick up this character in different sort of chapters of their lives through time and we get to see this sort of this sort of isolated period and then move to another isolated period it's not it, i mean it's linear in that they don't like shuffle them around uh the whole story is essentially a linear flashback leading up to the convention speech well i mean it's a biopic i mean that's exactly what a biopic is i think this is by uh, general definition what a biopic is. Yeah, it's no, looking I, I at agree a person's life over a big swath o- over like through these little tiny pieces. I think this is more a biopic than something like Lincoln which looks at a very particularly small portion of Abraham Lincoln's life, right? That's just as one one particular small segment. I think in general, this is the definition of a biopic. Okay, well I, I was referring less to the fact that it's a biopic, which I get. It's a pick about him, but more to the narrative structure and how he's actually pulling these different times together as sort of chapters in his life. And I think there is a word for that that I'm not finding. It's um, biopic. <laughs> like, literally, that is what it is. It's little tiny chapters of a person's life. That's generally a biopic. All right. I'm going to find it. I'm going to post it in Discord with the word <laughs> when I find it. And you'll see that we both are in violent agreement and there's a word missing from our conversation. And you will know what it is. I'm just saying. I wish I had my English, I, I can't my college wait English for textbook. you to find that word. Uh, okay, so um, so I really like that. This is the whole idea of this is just that we're learning how Kovic deprograms is deprogrammed right through his experience in the war, and I think that works really well. There are some things that surprised me. I remembered so clearly that there was absolutely a training montage in this movie and there is no training montage in this movie at all we go from him in massapequa and he's a rootin tootin uh you know about to sign up and then he's on his second tour tour and he's on the dunes and he's leading his unit and uh, that is a shocking transformation, and it's. I think it works very, very well in terms of his character. I really like the way they do these jumps through time. In context, uh, it was an interesting film to watch uh, because I was kind of cataloging as we went along how, like, what the different stages were that we were looking at and, and kind of how things fell in. Because, I mean, yes, we start with the first portion of the film is really setting up our story. We're getting a sense of who Jan Ronkovic is and kind of like his childhood and that that idea post-World War II of kind of this excitement about soldiers and and the idealism uh, or I- ideology that you had with soldiers almost, right? Where you just, you, you looked at them with such high reverence and the way that he saw them and everything leading into uh, kind of his passion to sign up when it came time to hit for his turn and then all of a sudden like you said we're in vietnam very short very very short bit in vietnam i mean it is one of the smallest pieces of this film you know we see his we see essentially two battles one is where he accidentally shoots wilson and the second is where he gets shot and um, that's his end and then we're in the military hospital for a while and then we go home and we have kind of two different segments at home we've got him kind of you know, dealing with life at home, but still passionately supporting the war. And then it slowly shifts into him 
as kind of the anti-war demonstrator. And then we have time in Mexico. And then, of course, we come back to, you know, now he's become the the protester. Um, and, and that's kind of the end of the film. And it's so over these different chapters, it's interesting how you do kind of get a sense of who he is. But in, in context of Oliver Stone's Vietnam trilogy, it's interesting that Vietnam is such a small portion of this actual film. I was going to make the same point that that what this film appears to be saying to me, at least, is that, you know, there's the the practical war and there's the real war and the real war sort of uh, began for Ron at the end of his journey in the practical war. Right. In on the dunes getting shot Mm -hmm. uh, and. For, for him, you know, coming home took many years after he came home. Um, and, and that, I think, is a, is a powerful message. It's one that, that I feel like uh, I, I can see why many people relate to this film, even though I don't personally have the, the wartime experience. I can, I can empathize. Certainly, yeah. So, Tom Cruise, you did a whole thing on Tom Cruise. I did. He was one of, if not, not my first, but one of my early movie marathons where I went through his entire uh, filmography and watched every one of his movies. This is a controversial film for Tom Cruise to take, right? Like he was on the heels of Top Gun, which is every bit the movie that this is not. Yeah. Right. And which which Oliver Stone really didn't like. He said it's a fascist film and totally didn't like it. But he did really. And I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't right after uh, right after Top Gun. But, uh, you know, then because there's Color of Money, Cocktail, Rain Man. So there are still a number of films in between these two. But still, he had that persona. He had that Top Gun persona through this whole time. Top Gun was the Tom Cruise star maker. Yeah. And and Rain Man came out, uh, you know, a year before this. Because of the kind of the the persona that he had, like people weren't didn't think that he should do this film. And Oliver Stone initially was like, well, it's kind of an odd choice. But then he thought about it. He's like, it's actually kind of great because taking that persona and turning it into this guy who kind of is broken by the system and kind of sees what what, you know, what's happened and and takes that huge shift. Um, it was a it was a bold move for an actor to take in his career, and he had just done Rain Man, so he was already trying to find ways to do that shift and stuff. But I think this was a big move for Tom Cruise, and obviously it helped Oliver Stone because it gave him the star power he needed to actually get the financing so the studio um, allowed this to go forward. He was already researching VA hospitals, the VA experience before Rain Man. Cruz was so enthusiastic about doing this this movie. I think it was Rain Man that, at least for me, it was like, I obviously we knew Tom Cruise could be a star, and Rain Man also proved that he could be an adult. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there, there is that that was the transformation, the Top Gun to to Born on the Fourth of July transformation was that he could play all of these things. And Born on the Fourth of July gives him the experience performatively to do all of them. Right. To be a, a kid, a convincing kid. He still has. I mean, God, the guy's 60 years old. He could still play chapter one, Born on the Fourth of July. Um <laughs> And, uh, and, and then we watch him sort of transform the, the peak sort of performative experience for me is just immediately after the, the billiard, um, the pool hall bar scene, right? Where he goes home and, and they have what could be an incredibly difficult scene to, to 
take seriously for us as an audience, right? When they're screaming and when he's screaming with his mother, do not say penis, penis. And she says, do not say penis in this house. Penis, penis, the penis screaming scene. And, uh, I, that, that's where you realize that, okay, Tom Cruise can be, he can be an action movie stud. He can be a grown up and a sensitive, uh, family figure in, and, and also he is one hell of an actor. Like, yeah. just straight up one hell of an actor to be able to pull this uh, off. Apparently, Oliver Stone at one point said, you know what we should do? You know what would be awesome is to help you really get into the character is we're going to give you a drug that's going to paralyze you from the chest down for two days. What do you think? And I don't know if Cruz was into it, but the insurance company was <laughs> not. So they didn't actually do it. But um, I, I feel like the levels, the lengths to which he went to figure out how to live as a disabled person to prepare for this movie um, were as extraordinary as, as they could get at the time. And, um, and, and I don't know about you, but I found it believable. I, I was with it. Yeah, he's he's fantastic through all of it. Like it's amazing the work that he puts in. I mean, you know, practicing in the wheelchair all the time. He, you know, a full year at least of kind of prepping for this to really get into the experience. I mean, I found him completely convincing through the whole thing. I, I really enjoyed how he how he took on this role and the the transitions that he makes as a character. We talked about shortcuts in Wall Street as far as the way the script took those and it made it less convincing when we had to buy into the fact that Charlie Sheen's character was uh we had this kind of character shift toward the end because the script just kind of shortcutted it and we don't get any shortcuts here like we really are and again it's a biopic so we're kind of getting that but we really get to be with uh Ron as he's going through these different stages and he's seeing all of these different elements whether he's you know, finally come home and he's still in his wheelchair, but he's fighting with his brother who's a young Bob Dylan lover and he's a hippie or whether he is now kind of uh, starting to have those shifts as he continues hanging out with Donna and seeing everything that she's kind of standing for and everything. I mean, it just those moments really stand out and seeing him make those transitions, seeing him in Mexico and how he really turns into this guy who's speaking at the 1976 Democratic Convention. It's just I, like every moment is there. We see all those transitions and Tom Cruise is able to carry all of it just incredibly well. Stone and Cruise, they're an interesting matchup. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about regularly throughout this series is just how Stone confronts his actors, his lead actors, right? He sort of bullies them into the performance that he wants. Uh, some of the stories that come out of their set experience of, you know, how, um, you know, they're just two personalities that are just brick walls running into one another. At one point, uh, Cruz actually says, you know what? <laughs> you need to not, you need to not do what you're doing. I put enough pressure on myself. I don't need you doing it, too. And <laughs> to hear Stone talk about that, he says, you know, Cruz was a horse. He's an iron horse. We had a few icy moments because I was pushing him too hard. And he said to me, I don't need you to put pressure on me. And he was right. He is a kind of he's kind of macho and wants the best. Perfection is his goal. And if he doesn't achieve it, his frustration is high. I think it helped because the Kovic role needed the pressure. The guy was living on the edge. 
so, uh, you know, as a result of that sort of macho understanding, apparently they didn't have as many of the conflicts that that are noted on Stone's sets uh, over the course of his career. And Tom Cruise, as a young guy at this point, is already demonstrating the same kind of machismo that got his leg broken when he jumped from building to building in the last Mission Impossible movie, like just going all the way for his roles. Yeah, he's always he's always turning it up to 11. And that is something that I really enjoyed going through his filmography. I mean, I, I don't, you know, kind of connect with his whole view of Scientology and all of that. But as a performer, as somebody who's putting himself out there constantly when he's acting and producing and and creating these projects, bringing them to life, he's always pushing pushing himself and, and in turn pushing everybody around him to deliver the best that they can. And you absolutely get that here. It's just, it's, I don't know. I, I think that he carries this film and does an incredible job with it. I do too. So let's talk about kind of the backstory for this film, because I find it really interesting. Because um, initially, this film, I mean, Ron Kovic wrote this book in the 70s. He appeared yeah. at the Democratic National Convention in 1976. His book had been published, and there was a lot of interest in it. Al Pacino was actually the one who wanted to play this character after seeing him at that convention and reading the book. And apparently Kovic was all over that. Pacino had already turned down working on Coming Home and Apocalypse Now. Coming Home, Ron Kovic actually worked as an, a consultant on that film because it, it's very similar to his story in some ways. And so he and Pacino met. They discussed it. And Martin Bregman, who is a Pacino regular, we talked about the two of them when we were talking about Scarface a few weeks ago. And they wanted to do this. They, they got in touch. They got the rights to the book and uh, started planning it. They hired Oliver Stone to actually write the script. And this is 1977. And because, you know, he had already been working on Platoon, trying to get that going. And so they knew he was out there. This is where Oliver Stone and Ron Kovic really bonded because they were both vets and everything and and started really kind of putting the script together. Um, I think that they had talked to William Friedkin about directing it, but he took a different job. Bregman got some funding and it was the movie was shifting around from like Universal or United Artists to Orion Pictures. And then Daniel Petrie was on to direct it. And then right before they were going to shoot it, the investors pulled the money out. So then it moved to Universal. And that's where Bregman and Pacino left. They just felt the script wasn't working. Everything was falling apart. Bregman said it's just an impossible project and said coming home was such a success. This is it's going to overshadow this. It's going to be hard to make this work. And so Stone was very frustrated um, and, and left the project. But he promised Kovic, he said, if my career ever takes off, I'm going to come back around to bring this project uh, to fruition. And after Platoon came out, he called Kovic and said, hey, I'm ready. Let's do this thing. And that's really where they got started. And so they they worked on the script again, got it going. Um, the studio, they, they ended up talking to the studio who said they were interested. This was universal around the time of Wall Street. And they said, you know, we'll give you $14 million to do it. If there's a major star in the lead role, and that's the whole thing that we talked about earlier, trying to get uh, an actor. I know he considered Sean Penn, Charlie Sheen, Nicolas Cage, but Paula Wagner, who is um, Oliver Stone's agent, had also, um, you know, was working with Tom Cruise, shown him Platoon, and Tom Cruise was interested. And that's when they started chatting and meeting and, and everything fell into place. 
apparently, according to uh, Stone, the scene in in, on, in the wheelchair, the wheelchair battle <laughs> in Mexico, he said it, that that's that's very similar to to the way Kovic was was acting with him on that in that final <laughs> sequence when they were had to kind of come to terms with letting it go the first time around, um, which I think is is uh, interesting. Yeah. Kira Sedgwick. I just love Kira Sedgwick. Yeah. She's just fantastic. And, you know, she she works here and she works well. We don't get a lot of her uh, once we're out of the the young stages of young, young Ronnie and his family. And we see her as she's uh, a little older. There's that whole high school connection they have. And I love that moment at the prom when he runs through the rain. You know, he knows he's going off to war and has that moment with her with Moon River playing at the prom. I just that's that's always stuck with me, that moment from this movie. And then we in, immediately transition to that incredible silhouette shot in in Vietnam. It's just like that said so much about kind of the emotional state of this person who's you know, hasn't connected with this woman that he's kind of always ha- had a connection with as a kid mm-hmm. and, and just like watching that. And then to see them reconnect later and he really, and he kind of confesses to her, you know, I, I wanted to come back cause I, I wanted to, I keep thinking about that moment and I wanted to be there for you only to find that she has really found her own space as this person leading the charge with kind of the anti-war demonstrations and everything at her school. And um, I, I don't I thought that was uh, a great moment for him as he saw her, saw what they were doing, saw the passion she had. And he was still in that space where he didn't really buy into it, but he was starting to see it. And this was interesting because this was a space where he wasn't fighting against it like he was with his brother. But because she was there, he was just I I don't want to say listening, but he kind of absorbed more of it, certainly than he had before. Yeah, absolutely. I it's it was an interesting sort of transformation that we we allow that these sort of avatar of transformation. And she definitely became sort of one of them, right, where we get this like he, she sort of leads him into a new part of his life. She's one of those big transformations. And I think that's that was really important. It, it's hard because I, I have a hard time watching any of these relationships and not kind of wishing at some level that I was watching Forrest Gump. <laughs> You know, like, and I I know that's that's a hard thing to say. They're very different movies, but you can't help, I can't help but look at what Zemeckis did and see a leveled up Born on the Fourth of July in Forrest Gump with more f- sort of fantastical elements and Lieutenant Dan and, um, you know, I, I just feel like all of those elements were, uh, were so beautiful and so powerful and, um, and and this movie is more of a catharsis and less of a of a sort of enjoyable experience for me as a movie. Interesting. Yeah, I don't I I I love both of them. I think they're both obviously strong films uh, looking at different angles of that whole element. I mean, I can totally see how Forrest Gump relates because with Lieutenant Dan and that whole side of things of being injured during a war, uh, I, I think there's a lot to that. But I I feel like this also allows for a lot more of the darker emotions that come along with that. And, you know, certain, I mean, Forrest Gump is so expansive, exploring mm-hmm. so much. It's just, I mean, the Vietnam portion obviously carries through. 
but I feel like you know, like we linger so much more on the characters here that we just get to, it's a full character exploration. And I, uh, specifically about how the war affects him and how it shapes his life. I think there's, uh, I, I find a lot of power to it. Well, and I think so too. And, and to, to your point, right. I mean, Lieutenant Dan is the vessel for how the war affects us. He's the journey and he's a secondary character in, in Forrest Gump, yeah. right. The, the primary character around whom the world revolves is, is not, uh, sharing that experience. And what we get with Tom Cruise is that just brutal sort of, uh, again, catharsis of emotion and, and rage and uh, all of the things he has to go through in order to say he came home. Um, and, and I think it's, it, it's very powerful. So yeah. do you want to do to run through any of the other faces that we see in here? Because there was a segment that I did want to have you help me with that I lovingly call find the Baldwin. Uh, but there are even some <laughs> other faces in here that might be worth just throwing out. There are a ton of performances in here that are worth talking about. You're talking about starting with his family. We have Raymond J. Berry and Caroline uh, Kava who were both uh, in Year of the Dragon. So there, as his parents, we have right. these two incredible performance uh, performers who I thought were great. Oh, Carolyn Kava crushes it. What a, she just plays this incredibly tough um, mother. Next to Barry, who's a pretty subdued dad. He is, he is. Um, but yeah, I mean, her performance, I, I, Carolyn Kava's just, I mean, just always has been something that I have remembered about this particular film because it's just a really interesting character the way that I don't want to say that she pushes him but like to be the best kind of that mentality but there's something about the way that she does seem like she's driving him often you know and I thought that was actually uh, pretty interesting and it made me think should she have been nominated for an Oscar for this because I thought she was it was a very strong performance by her mm-hmm. and so that certainly is something that I I would have considered looking back on this film again after all this time uh, Frank Whaley yeah we have then we have his group of friends we have Frank Whaley in here who's who's great um, I've always enjoyed seeing him uh, a few years later he would end up in in Pulp Fiction. So it's kind of fun to see kind of the transitions he takes. But we also have Jerry Levine in here as uh, his friend who doesn't go to the war. He's he starts up his own burger industrialist. Yeah, which I think is funny. He's one of those guys who I feel like I saw more as a kid, like in stuff like Teen Wolf. But um, and he certainly has shifted over to directing now. I mean, now he's directing. I mean, he's ton of episodes of like Hawaii 5.0, but certainly is somebody that uh, popped up in films like this as a kid. Okay, so find the Baldwin. Yes, we start off as one of the buddies. Since we're talking about the buddies, this is where we see Stephen Baldwin playing Billy. And uh, so he's kind of in that group with Ron and Steve and, uh, you know, Frank Whaley's character, they're all kind of hanging out. And that group is where we first see Stephen Baldwin. There's our first Baldwin. Baldwin number one. Baldwin number one. And then we go off to Vietnam, and that's where we find the second Baldwin. And I should say, while we're still in Massapequa, Tom Berenger pops up for his very brief part. Another Oliver Stone at this point, you know, he's kind of, I don't know if we'd say a regular, but certainly somebody Oliver Stone likes bringing him back. And he's the recruiting sergeant popping up. He is and uh, looks great. Practically an honorary Baldwin. (laughs) 
Uh, and then we go to Vietnam. We've got Ed Lauder. Uh, we see some news with Oliver Stone and Dale Dye in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, once we start getting into kind of everything going on in the military, we really start seeing a lot of faces popping up. A lot of people who you'll definitely recognize. John Getz is in there. James LaGrosse is in there. William Mapother uh, cruises. Uh, are they cousins? Yeah. He pops yes, up in there. And our second Baldwin, William Baldwin, he pops up as somebody who's one of the members of the platoon. Okay. We've had yes. Baldwin number two. Baldwin Where, number two. Where, hell, do we find Baldwin number three? All right. So he's a little farther down. Um, I'm just going to just go through the sections real quick because I do want to call out in the once we go to the hospital scene, Vivica A. Fox pops up as the prostitute that one of the uh, the patients is uh, having visit. That was a surprise. Although I can I can you can hardly tell it's her, but she does nope. pop up in there. And um, and then Bob Gutton also pops up as a doctor. Now, uh, uh, now we go to kind of we reconnect with Kira and we see Abby Hoffman. Abby yes, Hoffman, the speaking. real Abby Hoffman is speaking there. And Jake Weber pops up as Donna's boyfriend. Yep. There's another fun little face. And Edie Burkell is actually the folk singer. Which minus Bohemians. Minus Bohemians. Uh, but it's nice to see her. Um, then we go to Mexico, and as we already said, Willem Dafoe, Tom Sizemore, Michael Wincott, a lot of familiar faces down there. We go and visit Wilson's family, and we see Lily Taylor there. Now we're at a point where we finally are in a period where Kovic has decided he's going to become a protester and he's going to speak out, and we start seeing some actual people in the crowds and stuff like that, and this is where... John C. McGinley pops up as an official at the uh, 1976 Democratic Convention. Wayne Knight is also there. And this is where we see Daniel Baldwin as yet another vet. Three Baldwins. We got three Baldwins. We don't have the full bingo. But the reason, I don't know if it's the reason, but I'm assuming they're all here is because the Baldwin family is from Massapequa. Oh, bringing it home. I can't help but feel like when they were making talk radio, Alec Baldwin and and Oliver Stone were chatting about this particular movie. Yeah. And and he said, oh, yeah, this is Ron Kovic. He's from Massapequa. And and uh, Alec Baldwin was like, are you kidding me? I'm from yeah. I'm from Massapequa. You should you we should you should cast me and my brothers in that movie. He's like, well, you we just cast you. But yeah, let's let's see if we can find parts for all your brothers. Yeah, that's that's good. That's headcanon now. I'm sure that's I, love how it. It I love it. Yeah hospital scenes uh, were tough. Apparently, Oliver Stone brought in a bunch of real animal feces uh, and things for the grossness of it. Very tight quarters. Stank and was awful. Let's just say it looks disgusting. Like, I've seen gross hospitals that are, like, disgusting, and this is up there (laughs) for them because it just felt like I was like watching this and I'm like, I wouldn't even want to be stepping foot in that place to film like as part of the crew because it just looked that disgusting. And I yeah. know they're, they're lighting it in kind of that they're pulling a lot of the colors out. So to emphasize kind of the, the grimy grittiness of it all, but it, I, it, it was very effectively gross. Yeah. Especially the scene when he's hanging, he's trapped, he's hanging upside down in that thing because he's trying to preserve his legs and he, and he's pushing the button, which is broken, staring at a pile of his own vomit right underneath him. For hours. 
for hours he's doing it. It is, uh, it's interminable. And even for us, the scene is like, it's about 15 seconds. Right? It's yeah. just awful. And of course, the leg break is, is another one of those that I think is really hard to watch because he's, he is such a hero. He's got this facade of heroism as he's dragging his legs around on the crutches and then falls and his bone erupts through his, through yeah. his leg. And that, that's a hard thing to watch. But the result of that is just that, like, I think what T- Cruz really does in that scene is he brings about that, that sense of just like complete loss and to hear him talk about it um, that he says in that scene there was there was a real uh, breakthrough that he stops thinking about the the pain and humiliation uh, that you might feel if you're just thrust into that scene but just he he experiences the breakdown as a performer um, and the cast the, the feeling of loss with his his sort of castration that he can't you know, create life. He can't ever have children. He can't like all of these things suddenly occurred to Tom Cruise in that sequence that as a performer, just allow him to even more fully embody uh, Ron Kovic. And I think that's a that is on display, particularly as he's screaming and they roll him back around and he's screaming and he grabs the orderlies and then the drain isn't working. Like so many things happen all at once uh, that uh, as an audience, as a member of the audience, I just I'm feeling as piled on. Right. I think they they deliver that perfectly. And you get the doctor coming in who is just like trying to assure him, but it's like, is do, do you believe him? Was he an accountant, him? right? Like, was yeah, he really like, a well, doctor? <laughs> well, and it's funny because that's Mark Moses, who yeah. was also pretty much the same he he was in platoon as effective as the, in platoon. Right. His, like he he's a great he does a great job of playing a guy who's in a role that you almost just don't buy because he just seems like not the yeah. guy to be in that spot. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Let's talk just a little bit more about Mexico because Mexico gives us Willem Dafoe, Oliver Stone favorite, and we get this sort of. This this place, this sort of fantasy place, it's built as this fantasy place and you have all of these uh, other wounded vets who are rolling around in wheelchairs and you have a, a sort of um, prostitute industrial complex that caters to the veterans there and everything is just sort of sort of out there for and, and he has um, an experience with one of them that is transformational and um, allows him to sort of see his body in a different way. And at the same time, that transformation reaches its peak on as they're abandoned on the road in the dunes, uh, Willem Dafoe and Tom Cruise, and they have the wheelchair chase and fight and end up really humiliating each other and themselves as they you know, sort of scrapple on the on the side of the road and fall down into the dirt. And I feel like that's another one. That's another one of those peak scenes where we get Kovic's character realizing his place in time and space as a result of seeing someone who is more lost than he. And uh, that was that, that. That's another sort of just meaningful data point for me in in like when you say shortcut. That's one of the things that could have been shortcut in this movie. We could have lost that experience in Mexico, that chapter in Mexico, and it would have felt empty. I feel like Wall Street Oliver Stone might have taken out some of that material in Mexico. And I think Born on the Fourth of July Stone proves, you know, smart filmmaking wins out. Well, and I think it really is set up um, it, it strongly in with Michael Wincott, who only has that one moment 
down in yeah. Mexico. But it's, uh, and again, we just saw him talk radio, so it's great seeing him back here. But it's that one moment where he's just like, you know, he, he warns him. Like, this is a moment when Ron is seeing this life down here and he's seeing these people who essentially, it feels like, time has stopped and they're just kind of living in this strange space of gambling and drinking and sex purgatory yeah it totally is it's it's this purgatory moment that really you know michael wincott he's like he's like the gatekeeper who's just like get out of here don't stay and that's his moment and ron hears the warning but he doesn't hear it he doesn't listen he ends up staying he falls into this trap and kind of loses himself for a long time and it's not until that moment on the um when when he and Defoe, who's, I think, interestingly, we're in a space of dunes again, which is very much uh, initially at least shot like the dunes in in Vietnam. And his name is Charlie. And I was just like, there's some interesting thing going on here with this mental space that all of a sudden Ron is thrust back into. And here we have uh, this moment where he kind of has this this breakdown and he's he's really just trying to figure out, you know, why they're here. And I, I, I thought that that was really powerful the way he has that that um, thing there, you know, where he's he's like, you know, things made sense. Do you remember things that made sense that you that you could uh, things you could count on before we all got so lost? What are we going to do, Charlie? And he's at his low here. Like he is completely lost and doesn't know what to do anymore. And really strong depiction of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I, I, I appreciate you pull out the, the colors and the way the thing was shot overall, because that, that, uh, that tone and texture of the movie stands out right chapter to chapter because he changes it really effectively over the course of the film. Um, and comparing the the desert sort of sands of Mexico to the dunes in Vietnam, um, I, I'm not sure they're shot the same way, but certainly those same sort of just super yellow hot tones that that just feels like suffering. Uh, it, it's so strange to me that we go from suffering in Vietnam to Mexico and it's colored the same even though Mexico is initially supposed to be the sort of paradise for these soldiers. And you realize over the course of the story that's unfolding on screen that this is a trick. This is a trick paradise. It's not what you yeah. think it is. And uh, and it's sort of the color leads us into that, right? And sort of reminds us at the end, oh, God, he's still fighting the war. He's fighting the same war he fought in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, that was That was pretty powerful. And you see the, the like the people that we keep seeing, like Tom Sizemore pops up several times, and he always is like essentially having the same conversation. It yeah. it just it feels so much like uh you know this space where nothing is changing and they're just stuck fighting their own battles perpetually. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the process of making this, um, you know, this is Robert Richardson. We've been talking about him as Stone's DP throughout this series. This is the fifth time they've worked together, starting with Salvador. And they, the first time they shot an anamorphic, which looked great. Uh, it was just beautifully shot. They shot it uh, mostly with 35, but they actually did go back and shoot some, some on 16 and Super 16 to uh, for for the 72 Republican National Convention so that they could more easily blend it with archive footage, which I thought was um, great because you, yeah. you can't tell the difference between one and the other. It just all looks like it's fitting. It was really well, really, really well crafted. Just uh, lovely production. Uh, apparently, the film was shot in sequence. Mexico and Vietnam shot last. Wheelchair fight with Defoe was the last scene shot. 
before reshoots. Interesting. Oh, interesting thing. Well, and, uh, you know, I do think it's interesting. We talked about briefly uh, when we were talking about talk radio last week, how they shot that in in Dallas. And Stone was down there because he was prepping for this because they were actually going to be shooting this in that area. They wanted to film around these parts. They put this on hold because they were waiting for crews to finish um, Rain Man. But I, so it's interesting that they film all of the stuff like pretty much everything from Massapequa all in this area, you know, and, and I, I find that interesting that they found places in Texas that can work for so many of these places. And I, I never questioned it. I actually found the location work really well. I mean, they went to the Philippines for, for Vietnam again, but I think largely, I just, I assume that everything is, is filmed in different spots around the U S Miami was where it was. The convention was supposed to be, I believe. And, um, uh, it was uh, shot, obviously, in Dallas. Um, originally, they had brought in 600 extras to shoot that final convention scene. And it was Universal that said, yeah, that's not big enough. Do it again. Right. So that final sequence was reshot with 6,000 uh, extras. Yeah. Um, in a, so, you know, a different location. In a different in location yeah. in L.A., right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty um, interesting. That's a big level up. It is, especially since they were already over budget and yeah. to say, hey, you know what, go refilm that that again, because we wanted to look even bigger, which is funny because it's like that Democratic National Convention from 1976 when Ron speaks, I don't recall it looking mentally as big because i feel like we're so focused so much of the time on ron behind the scenes mm -hmm. like i don't think of it as big if i'm thinking of like a big convention it's the republican national convention in 72 where they're protesting and that is like because they're on the floor and they're just people everywhere like that's the one where i really feel like there were a lot of people involved um more so than the one at the end of the film so it's it's odd that there's that uh, that that's the one they went to reshoot. <laughs> well, yeah, because the the one at the end, like the most important moments are things that you can shoot with like, you know, 50 people, like the crowd yeah. with the backlit like scene as he's wheeling out up the ramp. That's you don't need a stadium to shoot that. <laughs> like, no, that's, yeah. That can be recreated pretty easily. And uh, and so I, I thought that was interesting, too. I think really like that's the hallway stuff. I didn't I didn't need anything. Yeah, I uh, actually want to go rewatch that ending just to say where. OK, where were the six thousand people? Yeah, where like, the did 6, they actually people? put them all in the shots? So that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, OK, we got to talk about the music. Oh, John Williams. There are certain filmmakers that use John Williams multiple times and often to great effect. And I think that John Williams, some of his strongest music outside of the Spielberg collaborations has been the stuff that he's done with uh, with Oliver Stone, like the Born on the Fourth of July, JFK music. Uh, he also did Nixon. I think it's fantastic. And I think in my head, I always sort of have it like this is what it would sound like when John Williams does James Horner. Like this is it, it is so beautiful and lush and doesn't sound like the Spielberg collection. You know, like it is it has its own sort of um, its own sort of family feeling to it. Like it's it's a different universe of music. And I just love it. I just love it. 
it's lush that kind of the operatic overall yeah. theme that he creates that you hear quite often i mean there's a few elements of it that but that operatic theme and then you have that solo trumpet which is just so haunting and this is something john williams said he said i knew immediately i would want a string orchestra to sing in opposition to all the realism on the screen and then the idea came to have a solo trumpet not a military trumpet but an American trumpet to recall the happy youth of Ron Kovic. Yeah. Like the, I guess that American trumpet just is kind of a rounder sound. It's more kind of reminiscent of a lot of that kind of fifties music and everything. Whereas the military trumpet, I think might sound a little more rigid and yeah. robust in, in the way that it plays. Well, and it's incredibly versatile, right? I mean, he's able to use that trumpet in themes throughout the entire film that kind of allows you to wander through the story, like the the musical bouncing ball that, that ties things together. And I, I think it's done to great, great effect. This is one of those scores that uh, I have listened to an awful lot. I just think yeah. that he is uh, really solid in the way that he crafted it. So Oliver Stone, as the director and a writer and somebody who we have now followed through 10 years of his, we boiled down 10 years of his career to about 10 hours of podcasting. Mm. From uh, the hand to this. <laughs> so that's <horrible. laughs> Quite a journey. <laughs> Quite a journey. Uh, how does it, uh, what have you learned about, uh, about Oliver Stone and how has it, uh, how has it impacted your opinion of his movies doing, doing this sort of distillation process? Well, I think it's interesting that regardless of the genre or the type of story that he's telling, he is always finding ways to kind of weave in some of his his own political thoughts and just kind of his view of the world. And that certainly, I think, is something that will continue to grow and he'll continue to kind of evolve over the coming decades. But I think it's interesting at this point to see where he's starting to find his strengths and weaknesses. Certainly, there's a lot of strength that he's finding in stories based on real people, that there's there are a good number of those. The stronger ones tend to be those. And I, I just think that there's something... Um, where he's really kind of, I don't want to say he's pushing his agenda, but I do say that he's, he has his point of view and isn't afraid to put it out there. I think uh, the, the piece that strikes me is just how good he is at doing it at this point in his career, right? It, because the, the earlier movies, he's, he's not very good at doing it. Either he didn't have much to say, which I, I doubt, or he just didn't have the the tools he needed to develop to actually uh, to actually do it. And uh, I think this movie shows, even though it can be criticized as kind of heavy handed, when you look at his sort of Vietnam trilogy and the films uh, that he makes around criticism of some aspect of culture, American life, or politics, whatever. Um, it shows how adept he is at planting those seeds of question of, you know, you may not agree, but at least I'm provoking you to question. And I think that is uh, it's a tool set. Many directors don't ever take the sort of time or initiative to 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 learn. Right. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes Oliver Stone a unique filmmaker, even though I clearly don't like all of his films. In fact, if anything, this series has demonstrated for me, I don't like more of his films than I do like. Um, I appreciate him and what he has 
crafted here so much more. To that point, a lot of the films at the beginning of the series were ones that he had only been hired to write. He wasn't really behind them. It really wasn't until midway through our series when we started talking about Salvador that things definitely started shifting and it became more very specific the types of stories Oliver Stone was trying to push. So there's definitely, I think that's certainly something we're seeing here is a growing, growing pains for him, right? I mean, we didn't look at his first film or Midnight Express, which he won an Oscar for in 78 when he adapted that story. But even there, like with those two films before this particular series, you're also seeing this, this, the stages of this person who's struggling trying to figure out what to do. And I think by the time we hit this film, uh, I mean, this is the first film where he actually is getting publicly attacked in the media. Part of it is the portrayal of, of Ron Kovic, who, you know, there was a thing at the time Kovic was uh, running for going to run for Congress as a Democratic opponent opponent to uh, California Republican Robert Dornan and Dornan really um, came out against the film and how they portrayed Kovic and everything. And, and Kovic said it was this hate campaign and stuff. But then, you know, Pat Buchanan, who is the, uh, you know, former White House communications director, he said that Stone was a propagandist. And this is really where they started kind of people started leaning into the way that Stone was pushing his films. And I think Stone, I don't want to say he leans into that, but he certainly, again, doesn't shy away from it. And when you look at stuff like JFK, you're really seeing Stone looking at what he can do to provoke and to create conversation. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I think the the sort of market response to that is the more he leans into the things that he wants to create a conversation about, the more important his films become, right? I mean, that's what we get right in the middle of this series is, oh, wait a minute, I can be myself and use these tools that I've learned and create movies that are provocative, right? And I, I think that is a... Uh, that's an important lesson out of Oliver Stone in the 80s is what he sort of realizes he has to say that is more than just putting pixels on screen. And I mean, you look at where he goes in the 90s. It's it's very much a kind of a continuation of this. And there's there's stronger and weaker films over the course of that decade. But again, he is continuing to say, I have something to say. And I think that's what I really enjoy about his films and looking through his his filmography moving forward i think i've seen all but uh two three four of them so um yeah i mean i almost want to just kind of finish it up so that i can kind of really get a sense of of what he's doing here i don't think it's a surprise to say for me my favorite film in the lot is talk radio by a mile by that much huh not not for you I, I mean, it's way up there. I, 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 I'm that was still certainly torn. the biggest surprise. I think for it, both well, of absolutely us. the biggest surprise. Uh, I just coming um, through all these films that I'd heard of or seen, and I, I knew something about it, but I didn't really. And I'd heard mixed things about it, but I don't know. I found it to be incredibly strong, and certainly one I'm looking forward to revisiting. This film, like I said, this film, JFK, and now Talk Radio are probably my three favorites of his. Uh, I just think all three of those films were. Um, incredibly strong. Well, and it's interesting where we leave off here, too, because the the next batch of films, uh, really from The Doors through Nixon, uh, for me, are they, they are the definitive Oliver Stone. 
uh, like somebody says, oh, what films did Oliver Stone do? And I'm going to name those films. Now talk radio, too. Um, and so uh, it's 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 a little bit disheartening that we're stopping now because I feel like now I've got kind of my mojo going. <laughs> I'd like to come back and talk about more of these uh, more of these films in particular. I haven't revisited The Doors in forever, but um, I remember thinking some positive things about it. Yeah, that's uh, that's one that I, I saw in the theaters with my mom, yeah. and I'll never forget how weird that was because <laughs> yeah. there were some scenes I'm like, I don't know if I should be sitting next to my mother in this particular moment. But my memory of any given Sunday is is rough. I haven't seen U-Turn um, or I don't think oh, I've U-turn seen Alexander either. Probably his most fun film to watch. I, I really enjoy that one. OK, uh, World Trade Center. Now we're pushing into a new kind of territory for Oliver Stone. And I feel like the Oliver Stone in the 2000s is worth its maybe its own series, but I don't think it would be as much fun. Yeah, I mean, Snowden, we talked about as a film board episode. Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. I mean, we mentioned that briefly when we talked about Wall Street. I didn't care for it that much. And then I think, you know, between JFK, Nixon, and W, he's got an interesting kind of presidential trilogy that he has. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm very curious. I, I feel like now, I mean, I know he's moving, working on a new movie, White Lies, but I feel like, uh, you know, he's really kind of pushed into some interesting TV projects. I mean, that's certainly the last 10 years with between the untold history of the U.S. and the Putin interviews, some interesting kind of TV doc projects mm-hmm. that he's been doing that uh, excited that he's still trying to find ways to kind of look at politics and get things, get kind of opinions out there. Me too. Um, so there we go. Oliver Stone. Uh, let's let's uh, let's wrap it up, Andy. How did this uh, do at award season? Uh, this was a popular film. Fifteen wins, twenty six other nominations over at the Oscars. Eight nominations there. Oliver Stone won for best director, and the film won best editing, which is usually a sign that it's going to win best picture. But it didn't. The film lost to Driving Miss Daisy, which we've talked about on the show. We've now talked about three of the five nominated films. We talked about Driving Miss Daisy, this, and Field of Dreams. We still haven't discussed My Left Foot or Dead Poets Society. We did talk about Do the Right Thing on the show, though. It's a very strong year, tough call. Mm-hmm. Any sense as to what you would vote for now, having rewatched this? I don't know, man. This is this is tough. I I can I can tell you one thing. I don't think it would be Driving Miss Daisy. I don't think I would pick that either. But what would you have picked? That's where it's like the other one's uh, kind of a toss up. Right now, I'm leaning toward do the right thing. But, you know, time and context and history does a lot. It does. Absolutely. I feel like if I were picking of the five, I probably would pick this. This this seems like the big one that I would pick as much as I love Field of Dreams, Dead Poets Society, my left. I mean, honestly, I love all of the films that were that were nominated. If I if I could push something else in there, it certainly would be do the right thing. And now I probably would lean heavily on getting that in the best picture slot. Yeah. Um, Tom Cruise did lose to Daniel Day Lewis for my left foot. Adapted script lost to Driving Miss Daisy. Cinematography lost to Glory. Shot by Freddie Francis, another beautiful looking war film. Yeah. Same thing with sound. They lost to glory. And John Williams score lost to The Little Mermaid. This is really the the big kickoff of Disney's resurgence in the late 80s, early 90s for the music and the, and the start of Alan Menken winning as many Oscars as he did, because certainly his music is um, pretty unforgettable. Truly. Over at the Golden Globes, it won Best Picture Drama, Best Director, Best Actor in a Drama, Best Screenplay, and then, then again, the score lost to Little Mermaid. And then I just had to call this out because it was kind of a funny award at the MTV Video Music Awards. 
It got a nomination for the best video from a film. Edie Brickell I almost don't a- even want you to say it. I don't <laughs> even want you to say it. Singing A Hard Rain's A Gotta Fall, which is, of course, Bob Dylan's song. She lost to Billy Idol singing Cradle of Love in The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. That's oh right. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How did it do at the box office? Well, Stone still did manage to stay relatively cheap for his second Vietnam film, starting with $14 million, then going over budget, landing on $17.8 million, which is $36.8 million in today's dollars. The film opened limited on five screens December 22, 1989, opposite Roger and Me, Camille Claudel, Always, Music Box, Akira, and Tango and Cash. This film opened in 18th place, which it held for two weeks before going wide, and jumping to first place, which it held for three weeks. It dropped out of the top 10 after 14 weeks, but it did really well for itself, earning $70 million domestically and $91 million internationally for a total adjusted gross of $333.1 million, making it the 10th highest grossing film of 1989. That lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2 million. Not quite as good as Platoon, but still a solid entry for Stone and another sign that he was on the right track to success. All right. I feel like I like this movie a plenty, but I'm surprised at my even my own flick chart ranking, Andy. I think we oh need to take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this fair show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it should take you straight to board on the 4th of July in the flick chart database, where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Born on the 4th of July or The Birdcage? Uh, born on the 4th of July. Born on the 4th of July. Oh, we didn't even mention Tom Cruise is actually born on the 3rd of July. <laughs> That's right. Uh, born on the 4th of July or Fargo? I could kind of see Tom Cruise feeling really bad about that. Like from a character performance, he's just not enough. You it's know not... that he beat himself up about that yeah. every single day. Right. <laughs> All right. What was that last one? I wonder if he screamed at the crew about that at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Born on the 4th of July or Fargo? Uh, Fargo. Fargo for me, too. Born on the 4th of July or Interstellar? Interstellar. Born on the 4th of July. And And here we go. A one. (laughs) Two. (laughs) Two. Three. Three. Scissors. All right. Born on the 4th of July takes it. Born on the 4th of July or The Verdict. Ooh, strong Paul Newman performance. They, of course, were together in The Color of Money a few years. Weirdly, right between the two of these films. I think I would go uh, Born on the 4th of July. I would go Born on the 4th of July as well. Born on the 4th of July or Ronin. Ronin. I will say Ronin as well. Born oh, on the 4th sorry. of July or Three Amigos. You first. <laughs> I want to say Born on the Fourth of July because it's do. probably the better film. You're going to say Three you know, Amigos. I'm going to say Three Amigos. Yeah, you are. Me too. Yeah, I know. Born on the Fourth of July or The Night of the Hunter? Night of the Hunter. The Night of the Hunter. Born on the Fourth of July or Judo? From our Zhang Yimou series. Uh, I'll go with Judo. Oh, I'm going to say Born on the Fourth of July. All right. Okay, here we go. One. One. Two, two, three, three. Rock, rock, paper. Rock. Born on you the Fourth of July you lose takes some, it. Andy. <laughs> That's right. Born on the Fourth of July or Tenet? Ooh, controversial opinion. I'll say Born on the Fourth of July. Uh, Tenet. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here, we, Here go. we go. One, one, two, two three. three. Rock. Paper. 
Oh, Andy, Fourth, three Fourth of July for takes three. It. Look at that. I know. Well, that lands born on the 4th of July. It's about 153 on our chart. 153 out of 400 and, or sorry, out of 500 movies. That's right. <laughs> we just crossed the threshold. Number 500. That puts it at a 69% on our chart. 69%. Okay. That's, I get it. That's fine. Uh, I, I'm not quite, I'm not quite as high. <laughs> Yeah, you've you've said as much. <laughs> How's yours? How's your, I mean, actually, it's not bad. No, I, I mean, mine's mine's pretty high. It's four seventy seven out of forty five eighty five, which is, uh, you know, it's a ninety percent is where it lands on my own chart. Okay, interesting. Mine's actually three eighty out of fourteen ninety two, which is a seventy five percent. If I go by this, according to the algorithm over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, it should be a three and a half star film. I came into this really thinking this is a four star film and I, I'm, I'll give it a four star and a heart for me. And it, it starts with the hair and there, then the stars fall a little bit around the edges. So it's fine. <laughs> You're so shallow. Are you, is this a five star for you? I'm losing. It's a five star film and a heart yeah. for me. It's just, uh, I think that this is for me. And I've only seen two thirds of the Vietnam trilogy, but certainly the stronger. And I know you found Platoon stronger than this, but I find I did, this one yeah. to be the stronger one for me. Okay. Well, that's it then. Where do we go from here? Yeah, we are finally uh, leaving Oliver Stone behind. Um, interesting enough, we are actually following Lily Taylor, which is uh, kind of a surprise, but um, we're going to be jumping into our Mary Heron series. I have only seen one of the three films we're going to be talking about. We're looking at the three films that uh, she did spanning uh, 96 to 2005. I shot Andy Warhol, American Psycho, and The Notorious Betty Page. So we'll be joining her and Lily Taylor in 96 to see I, I Shot Andy Warhol. So I'm very curious to jump into this series. Now, you've tracked down all three of these movies. Are they easy to find? I think there was one that was tricky. I Shot Andy Warhol is tricky. I think that you ended up finding a link for us to watch on YouTube. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe pretend you didn't hear that. <laughs> as soon as people find it, it tends to go away. We are the curse of YouTube movies, so um, or watch it quick. Yeah, American Psycho is pretty regularly available. Uh, I found the Notorious Betty Page at the library. I don't know if it's available elsewhere, but um, yeah. All right. Well, just watch it, and uh, you'll find whatever links are available to it. But uh, uh, I'm looking forward to the series. I am a big proponent of American Psycho. Yeah, so it's going to be a fun it's one. about time. Well, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. They do. And here is a, I, I got a half star review. Somebody really doesn't like it. Half star review from Veronica. Can I read it? Go for it. Born on the 4th of July is a bloated, overwrought, racist waste of time. This film, which easily could have been told in 30 minutes, is pushed to an unbearable two hours and 25 minutes. This is easily one of Tom Cruise's worst films in terms of acting. He shouts, screams, and overacts all throughout the runtime. It makes me appreciate how understated and shocking Charlie Sheen's performance in Platoon is. 
Who would have thought Charlie Sheen would be an example of great acting? It's also unbearable to listen to the constant casual racism against minorities in this film. Makes you want to take a shower after watching it. Kira Sedgwick is completely wasted and does absolutely nothing in this. She has no motives or thoughts of her own. She's just there. The worst is the casual racism. It's infuriating to watch how the hateful things these people say are gone unchallenged. The first 20 minutes of American nostalgia are painful to sit through. The film finally gets it going during the war scenes and flattens right back when he gets home. It picks up during the protest scenes, but that's all this film had to offer. It's like listening to an awful man scream into the void. While I can applaud the filmmakers making this with their hearts in the right place, I can't applaud how melodramatic and overwrought the film is. Ouch. Well, that wasn't a fun review to read. It was not. But what's interesting about it is like I could I I look through the review and I think, okay, yeah, no, I mean, all that's accurate. And that's also why I like it. (laughs) Well, and, you know, I mean, the unchecked racism, I I have a bit of a problem with that because, I mean, sure, it's in here, but it's also the characters and it's also their state of mind in Mexico because they're not. It is a story about unchecked racism in that part. of Yeah. Well, it's they're hating themselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. And I think that's uh, I, I, I put that into the into the world of the vernacular of the film. So Absolutely. anyway, yeah. thanks for that review. Well, I've got a, I've got a half star by uh, I'm going to say Dedudade. OK, <laughs> who wrote this uh, German review, Dear Mr. Stone or Lieber Herr Stone. I often forgive you your pathos and your wooden hammer, but this is really going too far. But it wasn't trash. Okay, that's something. So there you go. The the wooden hammer, which I, I you know, I'm I don't speak German, but it looks like ear Holz Holzgehammer. Holzgehammer. Yeah. Yeah. So I just love that. All right. There you go. Thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 10, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. 10 seasons of this. I should be a pro by now. First up, David Fincher. This was a member bonus. Gone Girl. Aquatic Killers. Mm, Certainly not Tentacles. (laughs) Oh, In the Heart of the Sea. Nice. Here's another member bonus. John le Carre. Uh... Uh, the Russia House. Oh, I love that score so much. Here's a tough one. Soviet science fiction. Ooh, uh, I have no idea. All of them? Not quite. Just Dead Mountaineers Hotel. Awesome. We've covered lots of great movies that started out as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Ivanhoe, Conan the Barbarian, Eight Billion Ways to Die, The Hot Rock, Born on the Fourth of July, American Psycho, The Shawshank Redemption. The Green Mile, The Mist, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. 
I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.